Hello and welcome to the 16th episode of Outside the Screen, a podcast all about screens in the lives of children and families. I'm law professor and child rights advocate Liz Hansley. And I'm child psychiatrist and stand-up comedian Dr Kim Lee. And we're bringing you the podcast because we just know how hard it is to raise kids when we're surrounded by screens. And we want to help. So what have we got lined up for this episode, Liz? Today on the show, you're going to hear a review of Back to the Outback, and we're going to find out about a conference that Kim was recently involved in. But first up, we've got... Paper Round, our regular segment where we look at the research that's coming out and demystify it so that we can better inform your family's decisions about how you engage with screens. Today, we're discussing some research out of Denmark and the UK about Belgium's ban on loot boxes, groundbreaking law, did it work? Did it fail? Stay tuned. Yeah. As Kim said, today in Paper Round, we're looking at some research out of Denmark and the UK, though it's not quite out of Denmark and the UK, is it's just one person who has positions at places in Denmark and the UK. Uh, and you can look that up and the link will be in the show notes if you want to find out more. But anyway, it's research about loot boxes and specifically an attempt by one country to ban them. Kim, I guess the first thing is to explain what loot boxes are for those who don't know. Well, simply, it's a gambling mechanic that's in a video game. And like lots of fun things that are rewarding, give you that little bit of dopamine. Mm -hmm. If you don't know what's kind of coming, there's that suspense, right? And so the randomization, the chance-based aspect, Mm -hmm. you know, there might be an element where you actually have to work for or pay for to get this reward. And usually the reward is something of monetary value or gives you an advantage within an ecosystem, a game. Yeah. So the, the key things are that you give up something that's definite. So it might be money, it might be something else. And you get an uncertain reward. And and the reward might be worth way more than what you give. Or it might in fact be nothing, I think, in some circumstances. Let's go on and look at this research. Um, Why did they do the research? Because we want to know whether these laws are effective. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Should other countries, should we just roll it out to the rest of the world, mm-hmm. essentially? Yep. And so how did this researcher go about doing it? Well, the uh, researcher, LYX, I think is uh, his, Leon Xiao uh, <laughs> is his uh, name. He looked at the 100 highest grossing iPhone games on the Belgian Apple App Store mm-hmm. and had a coder physically sent them to Belgium so that they were logging in in Belgium, not using any sort of remote access and playing the games for 40 minutes and looking for the mechanic. Mm-hmm. Yep, to see if there were loot boxes yep. then, in these top 100 yep. games and on if the it, Apple if it was store. there, they got a tick. Right. What did he find? Well, the interesting thing is that of those 100 games, 82% of them continued to generate money, revenue, through the randomization of rewards selling loot boxes. Mm-hmm. Right. So 82%. Yeah, and... As did 80% of games rated suitable for young people aged 12 plus. Mm, yeah, yeah and, and that essentially through different mechanisms, this Belgian ban on loot boxes wasn't effectively enforced. Mm, yeah, well, that was going to be part of you know, my next usual question when we've talked through the finding is to say, was there anything surprising about the finding? So, well, what did you think, you know, when you saw the 82%? Oh, to me, this uh, article was one big loot box for me. So one <laughs> surprise after the next, you know. <laughs> You know, for a a podcast like this and a a psychiatrist in this field, I was like, wow, it didn't work. Mm. They didn't 
enforce anything. There was uh, a gambling commission where essentially these games should have been classified as a form of gambling. Mm-hmm. Some companies actually did not actually publish their game in that country. Mm-hmm. However, it was quite easy for you to use uh, mechanisms to circumvent yeah. the store. So instead mm-hmm. of using the Belgium store, you go to the UK store and buy the same game on the same device. Yeah. Well, then that's always going to be an issue with national laws about anything that happens on the internet, that there will be ways of circumventing it. And um, I get a little bit frustrated when people talk as if that's a reason not to bother having a law at all, because it can slow it down and it can particularly slow it down for younger children. And they're the ones that we're most interested in protecting. So you know, let's not sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater there. But I mean, maybe sort of thinking through our usual process here, which regular listeners are probably quite accustomed to by now, where we talk about what's the finding and whether it's surprising. Maybe we're really still talking about the finding because that 82% is only the beginning of the finding because this guy, you know, he is a legal scholar and he went on to do some legal scholarly analysis of why that would have been. And like you say, he talked about the fact that it wasn't really being enforced And that's one of the things that's really disappointing about this story for me. If you have a gaming commission, a national gaming commission in a relatively wealthy country like Belgium saying, yes, we've decided that these things that we call loot boxes are gambling, therefore you need to have a license, therefore we're going to crack down on unlicensed people who use them and then they don't do the crackdown. That is actually the worst of all worlds because a crackdown is controversial and problematic from certain perspectives. But the crackdown that is announced and then doesn't happen is even more problematic from the perspective of, well, particularly parents and children and families and anybody who's interested in protecting children's interests because you think that there's a ban, you think that there's protection, and there actually isn't. And that's kind of worse than having no protection at all. And and so that's been your experience as a law professor. Yeah, yeah, it really has. This has been an issue that I recognise. I remember like back in the late 90s when people were first starting to talk about internet regulation. That was an issue that came up at that time and um, it's something that I've never really seen an argument against, you know, to say if you're going to have a ban on these things, make sure it's a good one and properly enforced. So do you have any reservations about the finding? Look, I think it's a work in progress, Mm. still very early days, but one of the positives that he mentioned is that it's encouraging us to talk about it and consider should we roll this out. And Mm -hmm. I think at the moment it's saying for most Western countries, we probably need to pull back a little bit um, Mm. unless you give those people who are regulating the the powers to actually follow through. Mm. Yeah. And look, it's the same with any kind of media regulation or other kinds of regulation, I suppose. You mm. know, just that false sense of security that yep. people can get if you think there's regulation, but it's actually being really badly resourced or not resourced at all. Yeah, That's a major problem from yep. the point of view of you know, governance and democracy and all that sort of stuff. Not to mention the particular issues that regulation is supposed to be protecting you from. So what about in your practice as a psychiatrist? Will this affect anything that you do there? It always comes up in conversation. Loot boxes do? Yeah, nine times out of ten. And in my experience, most of the time, I'm just being a third-party authority Mm -hmm. and giving the parents back their sense of authority. And if a, a law exists or a classification guidelines exist, I'm directing the parents to say, look, this exists 
in Australia, this exists in Belgium, this is what's happening, mm-hmm. this is a serious problem. You need to actually get the support that you need to support your own kids. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes parents feel powerless because the children have, you know, it's essentially they're the experts of their gaming world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And often if they uh, have a history of domestic violence or some other sort of family dynamics, it really makes it really tough and a lot of parents are burnt out. One way that I could see the research informing parenting or caring for children is that the starting point for this research is the Belgian Gaming Commission's declaration that loot boxes are gambling. Now, what followed on after that was a little bit unfortunate, and that's the main point of the article is to point that out. But that idea of loot boxes fitting all of the relevant criteria for gambling is a really important point that you can make to parents or to anybody else who's, who's caring for children to say, yeah, they're playing a game with a loot box. That sounds like fun. It sounds like part of a game, but it is actually gambling. And then to talk about how getting used to gambling in a fun gaming context could then prime the child when he or she gets older to become a problem gambler. So therefore, this is something that's well worth you putting a bit of energy and attention mm, into now. Yeah. yeah. yeah? And I think it takes the mystery out. So saying 80, 82% of these games have these mechanics. Mm. Parents are like, really? And sometimes I just have the young person sitting in front of their parents and go, hey, do you mind explaining to your parents what a loot box is? Mm -hmm. And the kid will just rattle off, yeah, it randomizes, it's fun. And do you pay money for that? Like, yeah. And the Mm. the parents, you can see the eyes are widening and they're like, shit. Like... (laughs) Okay, that's exactly what I would have expected. Well, there were a couple of pretty interesting tips from Kim about how to keep parents informed about what's going on in games and how much benefit there can be in that. The paper was by Leon Zhao and the title is Breaking Ban, Belgium's Ineffective Gambling Law Regulation of Video Game Loot Boxes and it was published in the journal Collabra Psychology full details in the show notes. Now it's time for our movie review and Ross is going to tell us why Back to the Outback is recommended for kids aged eight and up. Hi, I'm Ross and I'm here with some information from the CMA review of the animated adventure Back to the Outback. I'll tell you what the movie's about and what elements led the reviewers to recommend it for children aged seven and up as well as some suggestions for things in the movie you might want to discuss with your kids. The main characters in the movie are some of Australia's deadliest creatures. Medusa, or Maddie, is a taipan snake. Frank is a funnel-web spider. Zoe is a thorny devil. And Nigel, a scorpion. The four friends have had enough of their lives in captivity at a wildlife park and being shown off to humans who think they are monsters. They decide to escape, hoping to make it back to the outback. Luckily, they have the support of the Ugly Secret Society, an underground organisation of unpopular animals helping each other out. However, a chain of unfortunate events leads to pretty boy, a koala, who's the world-famous star of the zoo, getting caught up in the escape as well. Will they manage to reconnect with their families and mates in the wild? Or will the ambitious zookeeper, Chas Hunt, manage to put them back into captivity? There is a great amount of cartoon violence in this movie, with animals and people wrestling, pushing, hitting and kicking each other. Zoo animals are handled roughly and verbally abused. They are threatened with clubbing to death, a knife, tranquilizer guns and even a bazooka. 
In addition to these violent scenes, there are some scenes in the movie that could just scare or disturb children under the age of five, including some creepy looking animals, including some spiders. There are also quite a few scenes of peril, like being confronted with a huge crocodile or a shark, falling down cliff sides or hanging over the edge of a cliff. Another thing that might upset some children is where the audience learns that Chaz's son has been lied to about his mother. He believes she was killed by a wild animal, but it turns out she ran away with another man and abandoned him. There is no product placement in this movie, but a sexual theme comes out of Frank the Spider's strong urge to mate express through flirting with other spiders and doing a courtship dance. There is also some sexual activity involving cane toads that are kept in separate cages, ostensibly so that they don't reproduce. Once freed from their cage, they kiss passionately, including intertwining of their tongues. Substance abuse is limited to a scene where a biker gang woman mounts her bike while still drinking a martini, then falls off her bike. There is some coarse language, including suck and dang. Back to the Outback is an Australian-American animated movie with a famous Australian voice cast, a refreshing change in the massive American accent movies. It includes the cliched wild car chase, complete with shooting guns and explosions, and several ridiculous near-fatal situations. The CMA reviewer was disappointed to find that amount of violence in a G-rated movie. Nonetheless, there are positive messages and role models. The movie is suitable for children from five, but parental guidance is recommended under the age of seven. The main messages from this movie are that one should not judge a book by its cover and that good friends can become your chosen family. Values in this movie that parents may wish to reinforce with their children include friendship, determination, courage and kindness. This movie could also give parents the opportunity to discuss with their children the importance of being yourself, even if it's against what other people expect from you. Back to the Outback is available on one of our most popular streaming platforms, you can see the show notes for details. And the CMA reviewers recommend it for children 7 and up, parental guidance for ages 5 to 6, and for children under 4, well, it's best to find another movie. There is a more detailed review of this and hundreds of other movies on the CMA website. And when Ross talks about the CMA website, that's www.childrenandmedia.org.au. You can find the reviews by clicking on the Movie Reviews tab, and then you can sort the list or search by title alphabetically, by age suitability, by classification, or by date added. All of the reviews are prepared by people with training in child development, and they cover every G and PG title released in Australian cinemas since 2002, as well as selected M-rated movies and some pre-2002 ones that are available on streaming services. The website also has reviews of game-style apps and apps that may appeal to young children. Again, it's www.childrenandmedia.org.au. You might also like to join the CMA Facebook community, facebook.com forward slash Australian Council on Children in the Media, all one word. More details later on how to keep in touch and give feedback. Now it's time to have a chat about something I've been doing in my spare time. Liz and I are going to talk about the uh, recent conference that I attended, the Australian Gaming and Screens Alliance, or AGAZA, and uh, we actually held that in Canberra a few weeks ago. Yeah. Okay. Kim, you've been involved with AGAZA since its inception. What kind of organisation is it? How did it start up? We're a registered charity now. Mm -hmm. We're essentially here to prevent the uh, gaming disorder and screen-based diseases. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've been invited 
to Parliament House in Canberra by um, federal member uh, Zoe McKenzie, who has an interest in technologies, education, how it's affecting kids in schools. And uh, we invited some of Australia's leading researchers. Many of them are on the Agaza board. Mm -hmm. And essentially, we are just putting our energies together to have a coordinated and concentrated effort on how we can actually influence policy, educate, create Mm -hmm. awareness, get more further research and provide treatment. Okay. And obviously, there's a number of clinicians in the organisation and researchers and so on. And can you just maybe sum up what the concerns are about gaming disorder? Like, what is it? Why do we care about it? It might, might seem obvious, but let's just talk it through. Yeah, this is a question that I received from a psychiatrist in Perth. And they essentially asked, when is it a medical problem mm-hmm. rather than society's problem? Why can't we just let the parents or let Mm. the individuals deal with this Mm. problem themselves. We get questions like, why is this such an important thing? Why should we care about it? You know, most people can enjoy games and live their lives and function. Mm -hmm. But as a psychiatrist in this area, I obviously see the extremes. But then there's Mm. also everyone else who might be suffering hazardous gaming, Mm -hmm. you know, it affecting their sleep, affecting their concentration at school, at Mm -hmm. work affecting the relationships, just because we're spending a lot of time on our screens in general. And Mm. so Agaza does cover video games and and screens in general, Mm -hmm. but we all come from different areas, academics, clinicians. For example, John Saunders, our first chair, he was involved in alcohol addictions and uh, substance addictions in Australia, Mm. wrote a very famous textbook and uh, is on the WHO working groups of, of various addictions. Yeah. That's what I was thinking when you were talking about that Western Australian doctor's question because it is a really, really good question. But I kept coming back to addiction as well. Addiction is generally considered a medical issue and whether it's addiction to a substance or to an activity, it's still basically the same sort of problem, isn't it, would you say? And what I've noticed is that when new ideas come about, it takes 10 to 20 years for it to actually embed in society. Mm-hmm. And I think we're sort of reaching a turning point with video gaming addiction, especially mm-hmm. since the World Health Organization acknowledging it as a problem. But, for example, in the 1980s, there was a very famous American psychiatrist. He wrote an article. Uh, his name was George Valent. Mm-hmm. He's writing this article. He's asking himself, what is alcoholism? This is in the 1980s. I think mm-hmm. that's a bit weird. But back then... No one really sort of knew what alcoholism was, but he essentially goes, perhaps a better beginning is what is a mountain? And when you go to a layperson, you look at the mountain, you look at Mount Lofty here in Adelaide and you go, that's Mount Lofty. A layperson can point to you and say, that's Mount Lofty. When you see it, you know it. And his, his approach with alcoholism was when you see someone with a drinking problem, you know it's a drinking problem. I think with gaming, it's perhaps a little bit more hidden there's perhaps a bit more private, it's sort of mm. uh, stigma attached to it. People don't really seek help for it. They sort of just go about their lives and work around the problem. Mm. Uh, I think now it's becoming more in our face, essentially since COVID, there's a government inquiry into school refusal. Mm-hmm. I wonder why that is. <laughs> you know, Kids are struggling to get back to school, getting mm. back into physical classrooms. Mm. They've got other factors such as staying at home. Yeah. On their devices. Right. Okay. So you went to Canberra. Um, mm. What happened there? Well, we uh, essentially 
had a series of talks and yeah, we just caught up with each other really. <laughs> caught up and exchanged and tried to find where our strengths are and where the gaps are and essentially trying to make connections with people with potential abilities to influence policy and Mm -hmm. um, to get your foot in the door Mm. at Parliament House was a big step for us. So everyone was really happy. Mm. And I've heard that some politicians, members of Parliament, came and attended part of the conference? Yeah. For example, Susan Lay, Deputy Opposition Leader. Mm -hmm. We had a lot of advisors. Obviously, um, they knew we were there Mm. and we got a Sunday Mail interview Mm -hmm. out of that. And, uh, yeah, small steps, small steps. Yeah, yeah, sure. But it sounds like one of the real strengths of this organisation is the membership that you've got, a a really good, solid group of people there who are... It's the uh, Marvel superheroes uh, (laughs) line-up, I think. Yeah. I joke about that all the time. (laughs) Fantastic. So the conference yielded 17 recommendations. I guess that was part of your discussion was figuring out what your recommendations are going to be in there in three categories. And we'll post them all in the show notes. But of the 17, Kim, do you reckon you could pick out a few that you would see as priorities? Yeah, I mean, the three broad categories are developing an evidence base in Australia on gaming and screens, Mm -hmm. getting the right funding for that. We love evidence. Yeah. Very good. Where essentially we realise all of us are working on a shoestring budget. We're Mm -hmm. doing it in our own time essentially. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, our good friend Wayne Warburton from Macquarie Uni he was essentially running his world-class Restat A program on volunteer hours mm. and he's had to pull back because even yeah. though he was on Australian Story, he couldn't get funding for it. Yeah, we'll post a link to the Australian Story episode if people haven't seen it because it's really very powerful. Must watch. Yeah. Must watch. The other recommendations are launching a concerted approach to the prevention of harm from gaming and screens mm-hmm. and also developing treatment approaches and capacity. And mm-hmm. and I guess where I lie is mainly in the treatment approaches and yeah. capacity. We have established basically the first gaming clinic in Fiona Stanley Hospital in Perth, mm-hmm. but that's using the hospital's internal sort of funding model to continue to pay for my time, for mm-hmm. example. Also establishing, um, we want telephone lines, so people can just call up and get mm-hmm. help funding uh, Wayne's program, providing consultation and support in um, communities and providing evidence-based treatment at the state level Mm. and then also specialist hospital gaming clinics, not just in WA but all around Australia. Mm. Okay. Well, thanks for that. Well, That's about all we have time for today. Yes, that's a wrap for episode 16. We'd really love to have your feedback, so please get in touch either through Facebook or Instagram. Just search for Outside the Screen Pod, all one word, or you can email us at outsidethescreenpod at gmail.com. You can also catch up on all things gaming addiction on my website, cgiclinic.com, and even book an appointment for me to see your family. Or if you really like us, you can help by becoming a subscriber on Substack. Details are in the show notes along with (coughs) details are in the show notes along with a range of further info about the things we've been discussing. We'd also love it if you could spread the word about the podcast among your friends and colleagues, and there should be a share this podcast button on what you're reading there. So please use it. If you're listening on Substack, you can get a private RSS feed. So each episode will appear on your favorite listening platform. 
apart from Spotify. Yeah, just do- doesn't work on Spotify, unfortunately. <laughs> just click on the listen on button and follow the prompts. We're working on getting episodes directly on the platform, so please watch this space. And, and this, this has been, been the team, team from Outside the Screen. screen. See you next week.